Hi, I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer R. Levin, and I'm a traumatic grief therapist and founder of Therapy Heals, where we help organizations and individuals prepare and heal from sudden or unexpected death. And in my podcast, Untethered, Healing the Pain from Sudden Death, I share resources and stories to help you go from the chaos of sudden or unexpected death to move towards healing in your life. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Untethered, Healing the Pain from a Sudden Death. I'm Dr. Jennifer Levin, and I specialize in traumatic death and helping individuals through the struggles, pain, trauma, and chaos of an unexpected death. In today's podcast, I interview Shannon Sessions, who is the Executive Director of Support 7, a nonprofit organization in Washington State that partners with South Sonomish County Fire, Police, and other first responder agencies to serve those in crisis. Support 7 assists first responders on scene where the crisis occurs and provides the clients they serve with safety from onlookers and media, information about practical next steps, valuable resources, and follow-up support. In our interview today, Shannon describes the services provided by Support 7 related to a sudden and unexpected death and the responsibilities associated with the organization focused on caring for others who have experienced a sudden and unexpected death. She also shares with us how she was drawn to this work, how she cares for herself, and what it is like to raise a family within the first responder culture. Shannon, thank you so much for uh, joining us today. So can you start off and um, tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. And thank you, Jennifer, for having me on your program and getting giving me an opportunity to talk about one of my favorite things, Support 7. So, you know, for me, public safety has always been in my blood. And uh, it started years ago, um, kind of the, the Lord's blueprint of my life has been uh, started even when I was in youth, a uh, youth and caring for other people and looking out for other people and, and feeling responsible for, um, making sure others are doing okay. And that all went into when I decided to go into the air force, um, after high school. Now I chose that route for a couple of reasons. I was raised by a single mom and I helped raise my two younger brothers and and I wanted to go to college and I wanted to do something else. And so the only way I could do that was to figure it out on my own. And so I went into the Air Force and I became a firefighter in the Air Force. And and that process was um, it, it was challenging and it was fun and I loved it. I've always been um, more physically inclined and uh, I've always done well with men and and males, and so you have to have a large sense of humor to to do these things as well. And and so it was a perfect fit for me. And um, I loved 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 my time um, as a firefighter in the Air Force. And so I did that for four years. Got a chance to travel. I uh, went to, I was stationed in Aviano, Italy, Aviano Air Base, Italy, Northern Italy. And, you know, it's got to be the best air base there is in the whole world. And somebody had to do it. It might as well have been me, you know. Where did you grow up? Let's start off. Where did you grow up? Sure. I grew up actually right here in South Snohomish County. I graduated from Meadowdale High School. They were the chiefs back then. And And that's um, that's in Washington State? Glenwood, Washington. Okay. Yeah. And so I grew up here. I was born in California, uh, but moved here when I was very young and uh, went to schools all in the Edmonds School District. And then that's when I um, went on delayed entry and then into the Air Force from there. And, you know, I was a firefighter. I was the only female firefighter uh, in our group. And I always said I wasn't going to date another firefighter. And I didn't date another firefighter. I just married one. 
And, uh, you know, it's, it was a wonderful, wonderful love story to be able to meet um, my husband, Keith, and fall in love in Italy, in Northern Italy, and to be able to have those experiences together. And we even got to take all of our family back. We have five kids and uh, to take all of us back just a few years ago um, to walk through what they've learned since they were born uh, about our lives together and what it means, you know, to them too, and how, how we live, they've lived vicariously through our memories through this. And so they got to do it too. Wow. When did you come back to the U.S.? Uh, let's see, we were there, we came back, well, so we came back to get married in 93. So we're going to be celebrating our 30th anniversary here in a couple weeks. So like I said, we were in Italy for four years, or he was there a lot longer than I was, but I was there for four years. And we came back, uh, to the States um, in 93 to get married. And then I got out of the Air Force at that point and he still was in and we got stationed at March Air Force Base in Southern California and which doesn't exist anymore. It's not an active duty base anymore. And eventually when we knew we were going to want to have kids and um, raise a family, we came back here to the Northwest where my family's from um, so that we could do that. Wow. And yeah. is, is your husband still a firefighter? He is. So my husband, Keith, is a battalion chief for South County Fire. And so he is still a fire chief or a firefighter. He's still a firefighter for, for that many years. And um, and he loves it. He loves every minute of it. And with the work that I've done over the years, uh he, we get to see each other off and on, on, uh, different, um, calls and different incidents, which can be pretty interesting. And, and what I mean by that is my, like I was mentioning about the blueprint of the the Lord's blueprint on my life has really been more about, you know, starting as an air force, uh, going into the air force, becoming a firefighter that started that public safety. And then when I got out, I was, and I, during the time I was in the Air Force and after is when I did my college degree and I got a communications and journalism degree, um, went to some different schools while we were in Italy and then in California and finally finished up at uh, UW here in Seattle area um, with a communication journalism major. And, and immediately um, was thrown into the media field. So I was a reporter for local newspapers for a lot of years um, in South Seattle and then moved to back to where I grew up here in in uh, southern or uh, South Snohomish County to be a reporter and editor for the local newspapers at that time, the Enterprise newspapers. So I covered all of Linwood, Mount Lake Terrace and Lake Forest Park for that for that um, publication. And that was, you know, a really cool time to be able to um, tell stories, tell, tell stories of people. And I've always believed that every person has a story. Some people think their life is very dull, but I believe they all still have a story. You just have to ask the right questions. And, and that was a joy for me to be, to be part of that. And, uh, and, you know, at that time, if there was um, a big incident, say um, some sort of public uh, high profile incident where somebody had an emergency or a death or uh, or something awful had happened, a crime scene, I was on the other side of the caution tape then, you know, and so that was so as a firefighter, I was on scene serving the people immediately with my skill set as a firefighter. And then now I'm in the media and I'm on the opposite side of the caution tape, right? On the outside of the caution tape, asking the questions. And then um, after eight years of doing that, I was recruited to become the uh, public information officer with the Linwood Police Department. Oh, wow. And I did that in crime prevention and, and coordinated all their volunteers for more than eight years. And as you can tell, if there was a crime scene or a big incident that happened, I was on 
the other side of the caution tape, answering questions of the media. And then um, moving ahead with that, after, you know, I, I mentioned briefly that Keith and I raised five children together. And we have a boy who's the oldest and four girls, and they're all adults now. But at the time, during that time frame, they were all little. <clears throat> and it was important to Keith and I to um, live, work, volunteer, and go to church all in the city limits area of Linwood so that um, we didn't have a commute. We were all near each other. And that's how we could actually have five kids and work both demanding jobs, myself and him. Um, at the same time, is because we didn't have a commute, which was really helpful. So we got a lot of joy out of that. And we we do a lot of volunteering, a lot of community service. And our kids would just come right along and be right with us, whether it's in a backpack or a stroller, <clears throat> whatever it was, they were always right along with us. Um, and I'm grateful that today they all have sincere servants' hearts and they continue to to serve in, in a lot of different ways. And um, around the time I, I stopped working at the Linwood Police Department, not I loved it, but but at that time I had four teenage daughters, oh and it, <laughs> and I needed to, um, you know, I had the candle burning at both ends, and I knew I couldn't get this time back, and 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 this is the time where they could go sideways, and so we took a big uh, leap of faith, and I quit my job and started my own business called Safety Sessions. Mm -hmm. And so that way I could um, be more con in control of my time and be able to be there for the girls too. And uh, that that business was um, fun. I learned a lot from that. Uh, it was basically doing a lot of the same things I did for the police department, um, media relations, consulting for high profile incidents, um, training smaller police departments and the public on um, public safety and ways of dealing with the media. And so um, anyway, moving forward there, uh, I I also was uh, asked and, and did uh, run for uh, Linwood City Council, and I'm on my eighth and last year of that um, commitment. And about four years ago now, well, it'll be five years in September, the uh, the founder of Support 7 died. And this was a sad time, although he started this so many years ago. Um, and there were so many wonderful things that have happened from it and people, uh, resources and trusted relationships with agencies he started, but there wasn't a succession plan. And so we needed to uh, have a plan. And I wasn't part of Support 7, but I was a big fan of the founder, who's Ken Gatiss, Chaplain mm. Ken Gatiss. Wow. Let's actually pause for a second, because yeah, that's yeah. what we're going to be focusing on, is your work at Support 7. And I'm just so glad that you're here today to talk about this wonderful organization. And as a matter of fact, the next three podcast interviews that I have are all related to Support 7. Um, one of the women is a volunteer for your organization. And one of the family, we have two separate interviews from one family, are recipients of your services. So to have you here first to be able to talk about this organization is just so great. So tell us about Support 7. Um, what does the organization do? Oh, thank you. I, I love talking about Support 7 and and it really takes a team of us, right? I, I happen to be the one privileged to be able to lead these folks, but it takes a lot of committed, um, compassionate, uh, highly vetted and trained individuals to make this critical service available for the community. And um, for more than 40 years, we have um, what's called first responder chaplains and an incident response team who have been responding 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, alongside police and fire in the moment of darkness, in the moment something happens. So what that looks like is um, you're waking up and your day starts as normal. 
and you're having breakfast, you're putting your clothes on and you have no idea that today is time zero. And at that moment, something happens, maybe your spouse all of a sudden starts having cardiac arrest and you need to call 911. He collapses and you need to call 911. And what, who comes? Police, firefighters, they come into your house, they come into your world. The chaos comes and you're scared. You're wondering what's happening. You're out of control. And you have, you know, 12 to 15 firefighters are moving your furniture around, trying to help your husband. And you're in the corner just watching all this happening. And it's in those moments where the battalion chief on scene will get on his or her radio, his radio to the 911 system and say, send a chaplain to my location. Mm-hmm. And, and it's then that, that we can come alongside these people and walk them through the next steps, whether that's because they were able to get his heart st- started again and to get a pulse back and, and transport him quickly to the hospital. And we can help the family get themselves together so that they can follow, follow along and, and be alongside their loved one. Or in the case that a loved one doesn't make it, that we can walk them through the next steps and talk to them about, you know, what what happens next. That could be a medical examiner's coming to get them, or maybe a funeral home is. And and we we're there to walk them through all those logistical moves. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the podcast is focused on the sudden and unexpected death that um so many people find themselves in. So let's kind of talk a little bit more about those situations um, because they're so, so difficult. And by the way, what an amazing service that Support 7 does provide. I'm curious, um, does, you know, some people aren't faith-based and um, does anyone ever resist wanting a chaplain? Oh, sure. And and let me start by telling you that um, you know, the, the chaplains, the first responder chaplains, uh, are all, you know, what we do is we walk alongside people on all unexpected deaths. It could be a natural death, like the one I described, or it could be like, like who you're talking about an unexpected, unnatural death, such as a death by suicide. Yeah. Yeah, A death by suicide, a death by homicide. Um, another, another family, uh, some other fatality at work and, Mm -hmm. or a vehicle collision. Mm -hmm. Yes. Overdoses is, is, uh, highly, uh, it's very common right now. Unfortunately, it's, it's its own epidemic. And with the epidemic of fentanyl and out on the streets, we're seeing it more and more. And unfortunately through the time of COVID, uh, while death by suicide has been pretty consistent from what I understand. Uh, the increase in death by youth and women has increased. And, and this is a shocking statistic. Um, but it's since true. 2018, the um, numbers are going up. And, you know, I, I, I wish I had words of how to describe what that means or why that's happening. But I, I think if we all could figure that out, we would be in a better place. Um, you know, we, it, it's a very difficult time. Yes. So what do you do? Um, you know, when, I mean, obviously, I mean, again, I can't even say it enough. What an amazing service. And, you know, when somebody's there and they watch a loved one die right in front of them, unexpected, they're in just shock, disbelief, chaos. Exactly. And you mentioned that sometimes what do you do if somebody doesn't want a chaplain? And I think that's a really important thing to talk about. And I think it's good for listeners to hear this too. Uh, Because when that battalion chief, like I mentioned, gets on the radio and says, send a chaplain to my location. First, they go to that spouse or they go to the family member, that loved one or the neighbor. They said, they'll ask, can I, can I ask a chaplain to come? And almost always they're, they say, yes. But chaplain, the word itself has a religious connotation. And so sometimes 
uh, that's a misunderstanding of what we're there to do. And while we do love Jesus, we we are happy to pray and we are happy to share those kind of stories. We're not there to convert people. We serve everybody in the moment in their moment. We know that um, we're treating people just like we would want to be treated, just like we would want our family treated in those moments. And there are there are smart, capable people who are walking through these things. But in that moment, they're in such shock. They're in such a fog. They can't even see past past their own self, let alone to do next steps. And that's what we're there for is just to walk them through the next steps. And, and so our battalion chiefs, our captains, our sergeants on, on scene know us so well. And we have such trusted relationships that oftentimes if somebody will say, no, no, thank you. I don't know. I don't need a chaplain because some of them might say, you know, I'm not religious or no, I don't need that. They'll say, they're not here to convert you. They're here just to walk you through the next steps. Mm-hmm. And then oftentimes that'll be like, okay, okay, come on, bring them every once in a while. It doesn't happen very often, but they might say no, still no, absolutely not. And depending on the situation. And I remember a, uh, one example of a death by suicide of a young man and the family was so adamant that they didn't want a chaplain there, but it was chaos and people just kept coming to the scene and it was putting more of a burden, of course, on our first responders. And they could just see the need of somebody who was there who could kind of choreograph in a gentle way, all the things that need to happen next. And I remember the battalion chief saying to the mother saying, listen, I'm going to call a chaplain here because I need them. Mm. And it's and it's in those moments we come alongside them. And when they see us and they know us and they start to build a trust with us, they realize that we're just there, like I said before, to treat them like we would want our own family to be treated and just logistically walk them through things that they wouldn't otherwise know. These are things we wouldn't want anybody to have to know how to do. And that's that's why we're here. We're here to take that and be a compassionate liaison between the families and the loved ones that have been left behind and the first responder agencies. And that could be the medical examiner's office. That could be a funeral home. It could be police or fire. It could be Red Cross. But we serve as that compassionate liaison between them both and just to make things as easy as possible for them. Wow. Now, do you just do the services at the scene or do you follow up afterwards or tell me more about that? Yeah. So every scene, every situation is completely different. Uh, some people, uh, we, they see us for three to four hours on scene, we follow up and they're fine. They have a good support system and, or we are an example, a reminder of the worst day of their lives. And they don't want to talk to us after that. Um, but a lot of the times what happens is as we follow up with people is that they do have questions and we always offer call us if you have any questions, whether it's a day at two days, a week, a month later, if you have any questions, if we don't know the answer, we certainly probably know somebody who does, and we can find out what what that is for you. We leave them with a a pamphlet too, a first uh, next steps pamphlet to talk about, this is what's happening now, you know, what to think about, remember in the next 24 hours, the next couple weeks, months, and year. And we also deal directly um, with veterans and veterans benefits and, and different, um, unique things about that. Um, also in our pamphlet, we talk about different funeral homes and cremation versus burial and those kind of hard decisions that most of these folks didn't even think they had to think about yet. I mean, particularly when we're talking about traumatic loss, unexpected traumatic loss of death by suicide or homicide or something, uh, another, type of uh, fatality where a crime has been committed. This is particularly jolting to a family. And we at Support 7 have created a lot of relationships in the community with other organizations who serve folks in in this time. And that could be um, the victim support services. It could be domestic violence services. It could be... um, it could be other counseling. It could be churches. 
it could be funeral homes. It could be uh, just a companion, just another person that you can vent to. And we're connected to these kind of groups on purpose so that we can connect them. And that also includes different cultural and language issues that we come across. Of course, uh, like I said, we serve everyone and we want to make it as comfortable as possible and make things as easy as possible for them in, in this very difficult time. Such an amazing and unique services. So imagine your geographic boundaries are pretty limited because you have such a tight-knit um, community. Um, I'm curious, do you know if this model has been replicated in other locations? So our founder, Ken Gatiss, when he started this more than 40 years ago, he how this started was he was a first responder chaplain and he had been responding alongside police and fire for some time. And helping people with unexpected deaths like we like we still do. But there was a, a drowning down at Puget Sound and uh, it was raining and there were there and it was getting cold and it was getting dark and police and fire and different first responders had to be on the scene for long periods of time and they they needed to be fed and and there was media there and other family were showing up and other looky-loos were showing up. And there was no way to protect the family as, as they waited while their son was being searched for under the water. And, and it was that time that our founder, Ken Gatiss, said, we can do better than this. We can do better than this. We need to have some sort of vehicle where we can... Uh, feed the first responders on these long scenes, you know, just something hot, something cold, just a, a high protein snack, even to get them through, have a bathroom, bring the families and victims out of the elements away from media in a protected space, you know, where it's um, cold in the cool in the summer and warm in the winter and have a place where they can have private interviews um, with police and fire and grieve privately. And that's when he started, um, with our emergency response vehicle. And we right now have our air in our second one. And our second one now is 25 years old. The first one was a renovated, uh, a renovated uh, aid unit uh, where, where people could sit. This one is a motorhome and it has a bathroom. And again, like I said, it's more than 25 years um, old now, and we're in a campaign to, to uh, fund, get funding for a new one of those because that one's on its last leg. But all that to say, that's where it hasn't. Has it happened anywhere else? Well, Ken Gatiss trained people all around the world. He's trained about public safety chaplaincy in all continents except for Antarctica. And so there are different, probably cousins of Support 7, but they're very far and few in between. There is another group similar to us that's a shoot off from our from our original support seven in the north end too in Skagit County area in, in north Snohomish County there. And um but other than that, it's very rare. First responder chaplaincy is pretty common all around the United States, but those chaplains typically are just embedded in the police and fire and they, you know, will say a prayer at a banquet and or check in with the firefighters and police officers in the station. And we do that too. We have those embedded chaplains as well, but we also respond 24 hours a day on scene in the trenches with them. Wow. What are some of your biggest challenges to running this organization? Well, people, <laughs> people, <laughs> People are a challenge, but, you know, I would say for, for me personally, you know, support seven is a nonprofit and the reason why I got involved and I have to tell you, I, I said no to getting involved three times before I finally said, yes, I, I couldn't fill the shoes of Ken Gatiss. Um, but I said no three times and, but I did finally decide to do this because, um, I felt led to do it from the Lord. I really rely heavily on my faith and I felt led to do it. And I can tell you about that in a minute. It's quite a story. Uh, but I, I think that running the nonprofit and raising funds is the biggest, um, challenge 
I I can do the 911. I can do the training. I can do the hiring. I can do the volunteers. I can uh, communicate and outreach and build relationships with leaders and the chiefs. I can do all that. The part that's hard is the nonprofit side for me, um, the fundraising, the getting the word out and being able to walk this fine line of being discreet and humble about what we do, but also letting everybody know that we need to be above the radar and we have to be sustainable. We have to be out there and let people know what we do in order for us to be sustainable. Yeah, I bet. Um, in this type of work, you are constantly surrounded by sudden and unexpected death. What is that like for you? How do you take care of yourself? What are some of your coping mechanisms? And and even more importantly, or no, not more importantly, just as important, how do you constantly lead a team of others who are constantly experiencing this? You know, I it's really a privilege. It, I get this question a lot and I know I've mentioned my faith and I, I cannot say enough how important my faith is and hope and giving people hope and whether that's faith for them or something else, giving people hope is, is the number one most important thing, regardless of what that hope is for them. For me, it's the Lord and, and that I rely heavily on. I can tell you that when I'm on scene and doing this work, no matter how dark it is, I, I can always find hope in it and a light in it. And that, and it's such a privilege to be, to walk alongside people in these toughest times and just love on them, mm -hmm. to just re try to relate to them, to try to lift them up, to give them other people to walk alongside them who they can relate to and um, offer them a hand up. Mm -hmm. Um, and just, like I said, make things easier for them in these moments. And, and it's a, it's a unique, unique, rare position we find ourselves in that is really a privilege and it's the same for all of us. And how do we do it? We debrief a lot. Mm -hmm. there's a lot of debriefing going on. We care for each other, um, the fellow chaplains, the fellow insert response team members. We, we debrief, we talk about it. We laugh, we cry, we pray, and we tell our stories. We say, how could I, you know, I've done better on this. How could I have done something different? And maybe uh, also, you know, we hear from each other on those moments and are able to, um, find new ways and other ways to help those who've had great traumatic loss. And that is so worth it. Those moments and to be able to see even a tiny bit, you know, we can't fix what's happened with these folks. Mostly we're there as a quiet presence and uh, people respect and love and understand just that we were there and in the trenches with them and willing to sit in their mess, willing to sit in their trauma, willing to sit in their grief. And we are, we're willing to do that. And it's been, there's so many lovely things about it too. I get it. Also, yeah. And I mean, I, I, I'm married to a first responder. Um, our whole family uh, is, is used to this and, and we're battle buddies. Uh, so, so I'm grateful for that, but, but not all of us have that. And so, so we really find it in each other and we really check on each other a lot. Yeah, actually, that's a great transition to the next thing I wanted to talk with you about, and that's your entire family and pretty much most of your life has been immersed in the first responder culture. Um, what's that like? Yes. Well, uh, we love it. We absolutely love it. I mean, it, it does, uh, you come over for dinner and maybe our dinner time conversation might not be uh, what the typical family is talking about because of all the different things that we do and serve, uh, in the community. Um, whether that is, um, Keith with uh, being a battalion chief and working for the fire department, or when I, um, served as, uh, PIO for the police department um, or any other community service that we do. And then now as a first responder chaplain and those stories, uh, our daughter, uh, one of our four daughters uh, enlisted into the Air Force as well to follow our footsteps as an, and is a flight medic now. And 
each of our kids, like I said, have come alongside us and served in these ways. And it's always been uh, with the spirit of public safety, um, whether it was our business or whether it was when we were fire department, police department, whatever it is, and through our church um, has always been about serving others and um, public safety. And so that's where that all came from. What do you, how would you describe your relationships as a family? Do you think they're different because of your first responder culture or kind of that um, energy that runs through you? Uh, I, I don't know. I don't know if we're different. Uh, It certainly conversations that maybe some people wouldn't more easily or openly have, we have, and I'm grateful for that and that opportunity so that they can see um, other ways to help other people, but also how to cope for themselves because we model how to um, cope when bad things happen. And it's not always easy. I, I don't mean it that way, but but it's something I think that that is a legacy that we can send down to our kids. You know, I, I want to if you if you have time, I want to be able to tell you a little story. Do you have time for a story? Sure. Yep. And then we have one final question. Okay. I like I mentioned, I think this is important for people to know and to listen to is that from the beginning, even so, like I said, support seven is so important to me. It's my favorite thing to talk about. With that said, when I was asked to take this on, I said no. I said no three times. And I was pretty adamant about it. And uh and and I wasn't sure that we we I took on uh with uh one of Ken Gatiss's sons, who's one of our board members, to go around because when Ken died, we thought that maybe it was time for Support Seven to die too, along with him. There wasn't a, a succession plan and we just didn't know how it was going to continue. So he asked me, since I was involved in the community, knew the leaders and the chiefs and everything, would I come with him to these meetings to find out if Support 7 should just die or or should it not? And we did that. We met with several different people and uh, chiefs, community leaders, church leaders, and they all said 100%, no, absolutely, we need Support 7 more than ever. And they said, we just need an executive director. And and a lot of them knowing me would say, Shannon could do this. And no, Shannon's not doing this. And Tim would say, Shannon, please, can you do this? I said, no, Tim, absolutely not. And it got to a point where Tim was asking me a third time. And I just said, Tim, there's, there's no way I can do this. The next morning, I was driving south. Um, to Seattle to do a crime prevention class for a school through my business safety sessions. And I'm driving down the freeway and uh, it's, you know, in all the traffic going uh, southbound on I-5 and I'm looking ahead of myself here and I can see a, a overpass and I see something on the overpass and I don't know what it is. I'm, I'm looking closer and I see there's a person up there as I'm approaching the overpass and I'm thinking, oh no, there's nobody supposed to be up there. Why, why is there a person up there? And as I'm getting closer, I can see the person kind of getting up on top of the boundary and throwing her leg over. And I'm like, no, 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 what are you doing up there? No, get down. And I always think it's a woman. And I look because what happened is the reason why I think she's a woman is as she comes on the other side and she stands on a, a rim, a cliff of the overpass on the other side her shirt comes up and she pulls it down and I and I always remember seeing her do that and I'm getting closer I'm saying no no don't do it don't do it and I'm wondering then why what is she pausing for why isn't she jumping I'm the first car as she is coming towards her and just as I'm thinking that I look in my rearview mirror and there's two semis behind me and I'm thinking no don't do it don't do it and as I go under that overpass she goes down behind me the whole freeway stops. I'm the only one on the road. And I'm just like, no, that didn't just happen. And I'm calling 911 and I'm telling them what's happened. And all I could think about, Jennifer, 
wasn't necessarily that woman who made that choice that day to change everybody's lives, but I was thinking about the semi-truck drivers, the other drivers of the vehicles that just witnessed that, the first responders who are going to have to get her off of the ground, the family that was just impacted, and the domino effect of those things. And all I wanted to do was turn around and serve those people. All I wanted to do was just walk alongside them. And I thought, oh my goodness, Lord, you just answered this for me. I have to do this. I've got to do this. Yeah. And, and that's how it started. Yeah. Wow. I'm so glad you shared that. Thank you. You truly have a calling and you are so skilled. Um, wow. Um, that's such a beautiful transition to this last question, which is, um, you have so much experience being with people in the moment, just like that moment when a crisis or traumatic death has just occurred. So what advice would you give to someone right now who just experienced the crisis, the trauma, and has that long road ahead of them of trying to put their life back together after experiencing the death of a loved one from a sudden or unexpected manner. My advice would be more to the people surrounding their loved ones, friends, neighbors who have gone through such a traumatic loss. And that is to be present, be there. Words aren't what they need. They need you just near them. In fact, oftentimes words we use can hurt unintentionally, uh, even with good intention. Sometimes words hurt. But I would encourage people to use their loved one's name. Say it out loud. Talk about their loved one. Friends and family, get at the level that your loved ones are at who've had this loss. Get down on your knees if you have to. Sit down with them. Use the loved one's name. Talk about them. Keep them alive. Find ways of honoring the loved one. <clears throat> Excuse me. And also recognize that people grieve differently. And I, in my experience so far, I, people tend to grieve like they live. And I think that that's a good thing to think about as you're walking into what to do next. If if your person who's grieving was always a task-oriented person, they're going to be more of a task-oriented person in their grief. If your person uh, was abusing substances before this loss, they're probably going to go there for their comfort. If your person was uh, more quiet and uh, introverted and or wanted to be behind the scenes likely they're going to go even deeper there and and it's important to allow each of those things to happen and try not to take things personally try to find ways to laugh about your loved one that you've lost and or situations and find the joy the wrinkles in their life that you can bring into yours to keep them alive. And, and again, I just can't stress enough for people just to be there because your loved one who's lost somebody or your friend or your neighbor will remember that you were there. They will not remember what you said. They will remember that you were there. And uh, we all say this too is, they get a lot of attention, a lot of energy around the time the person dies, around the person time the person lost is lost. If you really want to do them a favor, set we all all of us have our smarty phones now. Get your smarty phone out and start re making reminders in your calendar to notify you. You know, visit Sally, go see John, call Joe. And those are the times they're going to need you. It's it's even more so uh, 
months and years afterwards and just keep using that person's name. That's so great. And I'm so glad you said we grieve like we live. I love that. I say that all of the time. And it's mm-hmm. so wonderful to hear that. Um, This is such great advice. And I encourage you, if you're listening, to take that last answer that Shannon just said um, and share it with your loved ones. So it's great. Shannon, uh, I can't thank you enough for your time today and that you shared this wonderful organization. Um, It is like a hidden gem. And um, so for the people who live in this Sonomish County in uh, Washington, what a wonderful resource. And hopefully other people will hear about it and perhaps be able to reach out and learn more. Um, We're going to put uh, the link to um, Support 7 in our Facebook group and any other materials that you want to share will be in our Facebook group so that they can learn um, about your organization and all of the wonderful services that you provide. So thank, thank you for uh, having me, Jennifer, and thank you for all you do for yeah. our families and, and youth and people who need it. Thank you. So again, wonderful um, interview today. I am so grateful to Shannon for sharing this information with us today. I have seen firsthand the impact this organization has had on the lives they serve. For those of you who have experienced a sudden or unexpected death, you understand how helpful it can be to have someone assist you with the practical steps and information in the moment of a crisis. The minute you learn that your loved one has died, your world shatters and the rug is pulled out from underneath you. Having a calm presence who can shelter you from the immediate chaos, give you next steps, phone numbers to call, and anticipate your early needs is an unbelievable resource you don't even know you need at the time. The volunteer chaplains who do this work give their heart and their souls. They are full of resources, they are well-trained, and they are supported by Support 7 to meet the needs of those they serve. And if they don't have the answers, they will find out and respond to those they serve in a very timely manner. Shannon also shed light on some of the challenges a nonprofit such as Support 7 faces in providing this type of services, both administratively and emotionally. It's no surprise that funding is an issue. No one's going to argue about the importance of an organization like Support 7, but raising funds for an organization like this is a full-time job. Many people may not truly realize the value of what Support 7 has to provide unless they have experienced a similar crisis or know someone who has. It's hard to comprehend the totality of the behind the scenes administrative and emotional needs that go into running an organization like Support 7. There are administrative and training needs, board of director needs, fundraising needs, insurance and liability concerns, volunteer and support service needs, community outreach concerns or needs, and mobile van needs that Shannon described along with the various other needs associated running a nonprofit. Similarly, an organization like Support 7 must tend to the emotional well-being of its volunteers who are constantly on the front lines of life and death crises. Compassion fatigue and burnout are real concerns for those on the front line all the time. Shannon mentioned that the volunteers laugh and cry and support one another. And community among the volunteers is so important and so is training, but caring for the emotional well-being of her volunteers is a huge responsibility that Shannon and the organization must constantly attend to, to ensure that every client they serve receives the care that they need. It was such a privilege to talk to Shannon today. It's my hope that there will be more organizations like this to support 
the countless number of people who need support after a sudden and unexpected death. I'm so grateful to her for sharing her personal story, sharing how she was drawn to this work, how she met her husband, and the role that her faith plays in her life, and that powerful story that led her to support Seven. I've had the chance to meet Shannon, her husband, and several of her children, and to step into the first responder culture for brief moments of time when I go to support Seven events and trainings. I know I'm not alone in my thoughts when I say the world can feel pretty dark at times, but spending an afternoon or a day with a group of first responders and chaplains at Support 7 is like swallowing a light that illuminates a lighthouse. My insides glow, my sense of hope is restored, and I'm surrounded by goodness and people who truly care about others and making a difference in the lives of those who are in true pain. We cannot always control what happens in the world, but we can control how we show up and care for one another when we are hurting. Support 7 shows up and cares for people in their darkest times. If you want an opportunity to connect with Shannon and learn more about Support 7, please join our Facebook group talking about the podcast Untethered with Dr. Levin. Shannon's contact information is available along with the website for Support 7. Thank you so much for joining today's podcast episode with Shannon Sessions, Executive Director of Support 7. Our next interview will be on Wednesday, August 30th, and will feature one of Support 7's volunteer chaplains, Debbie Rosenfeld. Debbie is going to share the story of her own son's death by suicide almost 15 years ago. To learn more about hope and guidance after a sudden or unexpected death, please visit my website and sign up for my monthly newsletter, Guidance and Grief, at www.therapyheals.com. Bye for now. Thank you for listening today. Be sure to subscribe to my podcast so you never miss an episode. For guidance and hope with unexpected or sudden death, please visit my website, www.therapyheals.com, to learn more about the services we offer. If you would like to share your story on our podcast in service of helping others heal after a sudden or unexpected death, please email us at info at therapyheals.com.